This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Craig Cervillo, host of the channel. Uh, today, we'll be talking with Dr. David Gerlach about his excellent new book, The Economy of Ethnic Cleansing, The Transformation of the German-Czech Borderlands After World War II, published by Cambridge in 2017. David, hello, and welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, David, we like to begin these interviews by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So... I moved around quite a bit. I was more born in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and then moved out to the East Coast, where I, you know, again, moved around a fair amount, lived in Connecticut, and then um, went to school at uh, Boston College. Um, and I was back in Minneapolis for a stint, and then back to Boston for a stint, and then uh, finally back to graduate school at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, so that's kind of my geographical trajectory. Uh, I got interested in history uh, over the course of many years, um, and particularly the region of you know, Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, I had the fortunate ability to travel a bit when I was younger, and my, my father actually took us to what was still then the Soviet Union in 1986 um, when I was a sophomore in high school. And that was a fascinating kind of eye-opening experience for me that, that I have held with me since since that day, really. And um, then again, when I was at uh, Boston College, I did a semester abroad in Prague in 1992. So just after the end of communism, again, an eye-opening experience for me. It was still not quite the socialist attitudes were still very prevalent. And the city and the country had yet to kind of uh, reckon with its past and it had yet to turn toward any sort of uh, capitalist or or um, kind of Western attitudes, if I could say it that way. And and then so um, I you know after after I finished up at at Boston College, I didn't really have much interest in uh, pursuing education or a higher degree. I was actually happy to be done, to be honest, <laughs> um, and did several did several other things um, for you know, four or five years, uh, unrelated to history, but then, you know, found myself always reading history books and kind of eventually found that, you know, what I was doing wasn't something I wanted to do forever. And so, uh, returned to graduate school, um, in, uh, right about 1998, I guess it was. And at that point I thought, and I was going to be, um, I went back for my master's in Soviet history. Um, and over the course of the you know next several years at the University of Pittsburgh, um, I found my interest moving westward a bit. I finished my master's in Soviet history, but then uh, had already sort of decided, becoming interested in nationalism, that I wanted to focus more on uh, Central Europe, I guess, or Central East Europe, depending on how you want to break it down. And I then uh, was, you know, reintroduced in a sense to the nationalist problems of Central and Eastern Europe um, with, in, a, in a seminar with uh, the late uh, Dr. Rusnow at, at the University of Pittsburgh. And from there, I sort of became very interested in this German-Czech conflict that had uh, been written about plenty by the 1990s. And that's sort of then how I got to this topic. Um, yeah, can you can you elaborate on, on why you chose this topic? Um, I mean, because it's 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 so important for 
sort of the history of post-war Europe um, and that whole region. Um, so, um, yeah, if you could just elaborate more on to why this book came to being. Was it your dissertation? It was, it was. So in 1990, it, well, I guess let me think. When I was there, you know, the conflict in Yugoslavia had been going on for many years, and the Kosovo conflict had sort of erupted at that moment when I was beginning to get interested in nationalism as a as a force or a study of top. Uh, I mean, uh, um, yeah, a, an issue to to further research. Um, and again, my bag, the fact that I had been in, in uh, Prague and Czechoslovakia at the time. Um, you know, was kind of had, had sowed some seeds of my interest in the region. And, and I see the history, uh, for me, I mean, the, the history of, um, Central and Eastern Europe, I've always sort of, uh, seen it as a block. I know it's sort of gone out of fashion at this point, but, um, for me, I think there's something to think of the, you know, Eastern Europe from, un, from, in, in, from a sort of communist, definition of that region, uh, an important one still. Um, I, like I said, I think, you know, now we've gone more towards uh, broader world history and, and, and transnational topics and things like that. Uh, but for me, there's something still to that regional studies um, that, that that is important. And I think one of the things that, that I found fascinating and drew me into this topic was this post-war moment when uh, the, you know, that, and, or really from the war, uh, the beginning of World War II all the way through, um, the early fifties as a kind of time period where that whole region was very much in flux. And, um, not only the beginning of communism, but as we look at Nazi policies and Soviet policies, something that kind of, um, interested me was how those larger, um, political entities reshape the region in such dramatic fashion. And of course, I think one of the most dramatic ways that happened was through the massive migration, uprooting of people that occurred during those years. Um, in addition, the economic changes that happened uh, along with those migrations uh, completely you know, overturned what had been prior to World War II. And then you know, the communist experiment, of course, took things in a, in a totally another direction. And so um, with my interest in the Czech-German conflict, I sort of see that as a small or one piece of this much larger um, transformation that took place during these years. Yeah, that, that's a, a good place to transition. Um, for our listeners that may not be as familiar with this region of the world, um, can you briefly explain this area, this this Czech-German borderland, um, what you mean by it, geogra both geographically and politically, and like its historical significance. I mean, I don't expect you to go on and on and on, but just a, a little bit of a brief overview. Of course. Um, so when I tell people what I do and, and what I work on, I often ask them if they've heard of the Sudetenland before, because it does still... Um, have a bit of a, a, a moment in history that that some people, many people actually have encountered in their, even in their basic uh, course of study. And so this is a region that is, um, had been uh, part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, although at that time it wasn't really seen as a distinct region. It really comes uh, to be considered a and its own area after World War One, with the formation of uh, the Czechoslovak state. So this, um, when the state of Czechoslovakia was formed, um, it came out of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which of course had many German speakers living within it. And those German speakers had migrated over centuries into these areas. And it was simply a, a fact of state borders that they found themselves then in the Czechoslovak state after World War I. Um, so most of the region uh, is then along the border of what was then Germany and Czechoslovakia, as well as Austria in the southern part. So um, in what is called the Czech lands, or perhaps better, the Bohemian crown lands, um, that is the western part of Czechoslovakia. Um, these 
Germans lived in a, in an area that probably spanned a, a hundred miles or so, maybe a little bit less in places uh, that r- ringed or the entire uh, border uh, against Austria and Germany. And so, um, again, they had lived there for centuries, these German speakers, and um, at the when when the Czechoslovak state was formed, um, they initially resisted being included in part uh, as part of that state because, uh, or at least some of them, let's let's say the national national activists, if I can use that word, uh, that term, um, they resisted being included, even though from a geographic or or a state political sense, they there was no new border that you could draw um, to or to include them in Germany, say, or Austria, though they, they tried. And so the region, you know, itself then um, became important as the 1930s go on uh, and the Great Depression hits. This was an area that had an economic makeup that relied heavily on export products. And so when the Depression hit, um, these German areas were particularly hard hit within the Czechoslovak state. And um, at the same time, given their national, uh, if we want to say identity, or at least their ethno-linguistic background as German speakers, um, Hitler and was able to use their position um, and their grievances, their economic grievances in particular, as a way to leverage support against or in order to um, try to expand his own ambitions for um, empire or geographical reach. And so um, the Sudetenland became, after the Anschluss with Austria, uh, the second German acquisition or Nazi acquisition, better said, um, in the 1930s on the way for Hitler's uh, efforts, again, to create his empire in the East. And so that's generally how people know the Sudetenland. Um, and it was this area, again, where it was primarily German speakers, though in certain areas, uh, Czechs had migrated over, again, a long period of time into certain pockets where heavy industrialization was present. And so you did have some mixing going on, though it was, it was fairly limited um, in the broad sense. Hmm. Yeah, um, fascinating. Yes, I, I assume that most of the people listening are, are most familiar with the Sudetenland in, in terms of, of World War II. Um, which I hope will be expanded on by listening to you talk about your, your work. Um, can you start again um, talking about the situation in this area immediately after the war? Sure. So it's, it's an interesting story, I guess. You know, Czechoslovakia is one of the last places to be liberated um, for the most part by the Soviet Union. There was a, the Americans uh, did... Uh, occupied parts of Western Bohemia, the Western uh, portions of Czechoslovakia and, and parts of the Sudetenland then as well. But primarily um, it was the Soviet Union that had liberated um, Czechoslovakia. And so at the initial uh, m- you know, month or so after the war ended, um, Soviet troops kind of uh, had moved in and um, like what they had carried out in much of Germany was um, um, well, uh, in many places, um, they carried out, you know, they were pillaging and raping like uh, an army of conquest. Um, and this period lasted, though, it was fairly brief uh, for most accounts, you know, a couple, a week or two, or um, before the Soviet army then found itself to bot barracks and, and kind of um, just... Um, stabilizing the region enough for their own armies. They didn't really have any particular interests uh, in terms of uh, controlling Czechoslovakia um, in some dramatic fashion, say, like they did in Poland. The the situation is a bit different there. But um, after those initial days or or weeks, uh, things were actually kind of quiet in the borderlands. There's this brief lacuna, in fact, where not much happens. Um, it's not until the middle of June, so the war ends on on May eighth, technically um, May 9th, perhaps in in the Czech regions as things are still getting fleshed out. But um, it's not until mid June that the Czechoslovak army 
um, begins to move into those borderland regions. So there's there's a kind of a quiet period for a moment that's interesting because Germans that lived in the Sudetenland then didn't really know what was going to happen to them, and life kind of just carried on quietly for for some weeks. Then as the Czechoslovak army moves into these regions to secure them, um, again, at first, they're they're not as interested in um, the Germans so much as securing the borders, securing factories, securing mines, um, setting up headquarters for themselves, things like that. But then um, soon thereafter, then by the end of June, even, uh, they begin to uh, set up the expulsion and begin pushing Germans out of uh, various towns and cities. And they do this in a fairly organized fashion. They had been ordered to do this by the, the Czechoslovak government. Uh, the government that gets reinstituted after the war is called the National Front Government. Um, it was a coalition of parties that had more or less been in opposition to um some of the conservative Czech parties before the war. Um, and in fact, they had uh, prevented some you know, political parties from taking part um, in this national government. And this government, the National Front, was um, there were some socialist parties. And I don't necessarily want to go too far into that unless unless the, you think the um, listeners would want to hear about it. But it was a coalition group of um, a couple of socialist parties. Um, the Communist Party, of course, um, in Slovakia, you had Democratic Party and People's Party. Um, so there were there were several different political parties, but not all kinds of politicians or, or again, they had, they had uh, prevented certain parties that had existed in the pre-war to reform and, and become part of this government. And anyway, all of those parties in the National Front government supported the notion of, of the expulsions. And so they simply uh, ordered the army to begin carrying out these expulsions. Now, in the westernmost portion of the country where the Americans were located, uh, these expulsions didn't really happen because um, the uh, National Front government and the Czechoslovak army military really needed the support of the larger powers, that is the U.S. and the Soviets, to carry this out. Um, and they got they had the support of the Soviet military and government to carry out these expulsions. So the expulsions were mostly carried out um then in the northern parts of the country uh where the the where the Sudetenland bordered areas where the Soviets were um under direct control. And um it was at this point that, you know, the expulsions really got underway then in, in mid from really from late June then um into um, early August, so about six weeks. And um, these, this period is, has been called or dubbed the wild transfer in the historiography, which is meant to suggest that uh, these expulsions were just carried out by anybody who was kind of there, Czechs as a nation, this kind of nationalist violence that, that we uh, associate with expulsions like this, ethnic cleansing. Um, and my book seeks to challenge that broad notion um, by looking at cases of violence but, and also um, mapping out the military's role in all this as well as the government's role. Because when you look at the military archives and the documents there, it's clear that uh, they really set up a fairly organized process. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't violent. It certainly was. But it doesn't suggest that, you know, your average ordinary Czech uh, person who might have gone to the borderlands was involved in this process in any direct way. And in fact, they mostly were not. So for Germans, then it's it sort of depended where they lived as to how much these summer expulsions uh, affected them. Um, those living off the beaten path may have gone on and often did with life, not exactly as usual, but without being um, under direct, you know, kind of threat of, milit of military violence or other violence that that was happening elsewhere in the borderlands during the summer of 1945. So, you know, there was sort of this process then whereby the uh, military 
took up the expulsions, organized them um, to a certain degree at least, and began uh, forcing many of these Germans out. I should point out, I didn't kind of give a sense of the numbers here, there were about 3 million German speakers in Czechoslovakia at the end of the war. Um, not all of them lived in the borderlands. There were some interior regions where Germans lived as well in smaller cities, in certain cities and in, in pockets. Um, but um, over the course of the summer months, about 600 to 800,000 Germans were then um, forced out of the borderlands um, through these expulsions, and which left somewhere around one and a half million uh, in the borderlands then by 1946. So um, that's sort of the general picture of what was happening, I think. Um, and, and if I could ask you a couple of follow-ups to that. Um, you sure. mentioned that, that this first period of, of forced migration took about six weeks in the early uh, summer months. Um, was there a second period or was this largely it? You know, they had one mass expulsion and then they were done. No. So what happened, uh, part of the reason for the break, I guess, was the Potsdam conference that took place among the big three, the British, American and Soviets, right, um, where Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin met. And they were there to try to figure out, of course, most of the questions of post-war Europe that had not been um, figured out by that time uh, in earlier conferences during the war. And of course, most of the focus at the Potsdam conference was about Germany because those were the questions that had still yet to be resolved. But uh, part of the Potsdam agreement that they do come, that they do uh, finish was, was to sanction then the removal of Germans from not only Czechoslovakia, but also Poland um, and elsewhere. So these German speakers, so the allied powers then uh, sort of sanction this um, this expulsion, what they called, of course, a population transfer to make it, I guess, sound more um, palatable to uh, the public. Um, and um, it's the, the notion was, you know, that before this Potsdam Agreement, which gets signed in August, early August, uh, that um, these expulsions taking place were unsanctioned and sort of out of control or wild, as I had suggested, uh, that some people, that other people had, had said. And that after August, then after the after the Potsdam Agreement, excuse me, um, that uh, now these expulsions would become uh, better organized. And there was a sense that, that too, after the allies had signed off on this, that the Czechoslovak government would stop the expulsions, but that didn't exactly happen until December. And so actually another 500,000 or so Germans are expelled after August, uh, up through the end of the year then, um, which is not often discussed. And again, they had already been fairly organized from my research and it just continued in the same vein until the Soviets decided to shut this down. Mm -hmm. um, and and, and um, I don't know if you came across this while doing research for this book, um, but what were the opinions of the people on the ground? It's like if you were a Czech living in a Czech in a village in the borderlands and all of a sudden your neighbors are being um, deported was there was there public support for this? I mean, I, I can assume how the Germans felt, but uh, I'm curious as to how the right. Czech the Czech population um, either embraced this move or didn't. So there's a yeah one of the things I do in the book is to kind of break down the Czechs into sort of more um, various groupings based on their their backgrounds. Um, so one one group of, of Czechs were what I what are called old settlers, and those were Czechs who had lived in the borderland regions with Germans uh, prior to World War II. And um, again, we're talking somewhere um, in the neighborhood of uh, 500,000. Now, some of those old settlers left when the Nazis occupied the, the Sudetenland, but there were still about 400,000 or so Czechs living, old settlers uh, living in the borderlands um, at the end of World War II. 
And these checks were, were checks who had either had been working there for a long time or had intermarried with Germans, and they often had close relations with Germans. Um, and they were not actually entirely against the expulsions, um, but they sought to their I guess their their interest or their goal was to to see that. Uh, really, the, the Germans who got punished, if, if we think of the expulsions like that, were, were Germans who had supported the Nazis in, in to some degree. Um, and there were plenty of those Germans who had supported the Nazis. It should be it should be said uh, that were that were in the Sudetenland. Um, the rest of the Czechs then uh, who lived in, in the interior parts of the country, you know, there was a general sense that yes, the Germans should go. And there was, there was great support for this, uh, policy on a kind of, uh, broad base. Um, the politicians, uh, ramped up kind of nationalist rhetoric, uh, to, to get rid of these Germans, president, uh, Edward Benish, um, who, um, you know, is much associated with this policy and probably rightly so, you know, got on the radio and, and said, you know, all Germans must go and, and all the politicians, uh, leading politicians supported this policy. And so there was quite a nationalist, uh, uh, maybe fervor may be too strong of a word, but, um, atmosphere at the end of the war that uh, was both, uh, propagated by the leading politicians and supported by the bulk of the Czech population. So there was this, you know, kind of broad-based support for this policy. Um, there weren't a lot of voices um, calling for a kind of halt to this or, or saying it was too extreme or anything like that. Okay. Uh, yeah, fascinating. I think that's uh, something that I was curious about as I was reading your book as to how widespread it, uh, the support for this policy was. Um, so now I want to turn to sort of the heart of your book. Um, you, you argue for these economic factors that are critical um, in this, that play a critical role in, in this ethnic cleansing. Um, and you have three, um, property, labor, and industry. And I want to, I want to take them one at a time um, and sort of uh, have you explain what you mean by each one and how each one sort of fits into your overall point. Um, so begin, we'll begin with property. Sure. Um, for me, property is uh, a key lens to consider the interactions between, um, individuals and what this tells us about relations between people. Um, property sort of stands the key at the, at the center here because it was, uh, the, um, it was it was the what people most wanted, I guess, out of um, moving to the to the borderland. So um, once it was clear, and this this was clear, you know, as soon as the war ended, that the Germans were going to be forced out by the Czech government. Czech uh, mostly Czech speakers from the interior parts of the country began moving immediately to the borderland areas um, to try to gain access to property in the most general sense. Um, and we, I look at this from several different uh, perspectives. Um, one group of Czechs who was maligned and, and called uh, the gold diggers uh, by the Germans um, just simply would come take whatever movable property they could get their hands on and go back to their homes in the interior. So, here we're talking about things. One of my, my, uh, one of the examples I like to look at the most are Persian rugs or carpets, um, that were, you know, very valuable and very easy to kind of pick up and move. And there was quite uh, a lot of evidence to show that this was, um, happening on a broad, broad scale across the borderlands. Um, not only Carpets, but all kinds of things, cars, um, a, a, anything worth value, really, that you could pick up and move. Um, the, the, these gold diggers, again, if I take that name, uh, label, uh, would, would, would go up, grab, and come back. And, you know, there's discussions, uh, newspaper reports about, um, you know, 
people coming back to Prague at the train station with all laden with all kinds of goods that they had um, taken from the borderlands. Um, and it was, it was seemingly, and, and then of course the police reports and, and reports from local government officials in the borderlands, um, trying to figure out how to stem the tide of this, of these gold diggers. And this goes on for, for quite some time during the summer of 1945. The other, other Czechs at the same time, uh, sought to move to the borderlands, uh, as a, as a way of, uh, as a kind of social mobility. Um, and they didn't, they, they went to relocate there to live and to take over German apartments, German homes, German farms, uh, really to, to seek out a new existence after the war. Of course, uh, seven years of, of Nazi occupation had left the country fairly, um, I wouldn't say devastated, uh, compared to other parts of occupied, um, Eastern Europe, but at least, um, there was a deprivation that had occurred um, during the war, and so people were looking for uh, new new beginnings. And the expulsions then offered uh, quite a wealth of property. And so most Czechs that moved into the borderlands were were very were not very much interested in you know punishing Germans or somehow physically meeting out. Um, punishment against them, but were interested in their what they had to uh, to offer them. Um, as this process goes on, again, it's mostly unsanctioned. Uh, the government doesn't come up with official degrees to confiscate German property until after the Potsdam Conference in August um, 1945. And so, again, for the first few months, this is all happening sort of without legal sanctioning and without much oversight. Um, and these new settlers then, as they're called, and what I, you know, I call first settlers because the first ones that got there um, really had the best pickings. Um, they become a kind of interest group as, as time goes on um, in order to solidify their positions and protect their uh, newfound wealth and positions. Um, they will sort of band together loosely as a as a interest group uh, once the government later then tries to come in and and more um, and tries to control the process of property distribution a little bit more directly. Um, but that's a that happens a little later and and um, causes further conflicts among Czechs. But it's really uh, this great shift. And so the the maybe I should speak for a moment about these decrees. Um, some of the decrees um, that the, that confiscate the German property they happen on different levels. The first is is agricultural property. That decree um, actually emerges immediately after the war, and so agricultural property. Um, this was part of uh, the early program of the National Front, and they had already agreed to um, redistribute agriculture cultural property more broadly, but it starts with those of the enemies, that is the Germans, and then also in the, in the parts of Slovakia, where the Hungarians and Magyars uh, lived, they, they also listed them as enemies. And so their property, their agricultural property, was the first to be uh, confiscated by the state. And again, this actually happened quite early um, after the war. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, like I said, the personal property and, and other property, homes and, and businesses and so forth, doesn't actually get confiscated officially through decree uh, until, if I'm not mistaken, I think October um, 1945. Um, but there had been an interim decree that set up this, um, what, what were called national administrators, people who were given... Uh, who are who are supposed to take over enemy property, German and Najar, and also collaborators for that matter, um, and kind of protect it and manage it in the state's interests until such time as they could figure out, the state figured out what they wanted to do with this property. And so these national administrator positions were kind of an interim um, title or um, that or position that was, again, supposed to caretake these properties until they figured out how they were going to um, redistribute the properties and, and, and hand out ownership in some more um, systematic way. 
And so a lot of Czechs then, these new settlers, when they get to the borderlands, they become national administrators of Sudeten German property. Um, they think they're going to be the owners, though, oftentimes. And like I said, when the government then steps in later and tries to regulate this process, um, a lot of conflicts begin to emerge among Czechs themselves over who gets to keep what and so forth. But property then, you know, for me, it's really one of the motivating factors for Czechs going to the borderlands and their hopes either to for quick gain um, if they're a gold digger or for a new life that they hope to build on the back of uh, German property that had been confiscated. Uh, did, the, did the Czech government or even like the local security forces, did they do anything to prevent these these gold diggers um, or did they just sort of let them take what they wanted and they had other things to worry about other than these guys taking rugs out of yeah. people's houses? Well, of course, uh, I mean, yeah, it varied, uh, it varied from place to place. Sure. Um, yeah. Of course, many of many of the, but but I would say, you know, many of the security organs themselves were involved in these kinds of, in plunder, right, if we want to think about it like that. Um, as And there were plenty of cases of corrupt officials uh, um, who were involved in, in, in taking German property or, um, so in, in some way, you know, while it would be wrong to say everyone was on the take, um, certainly government officials and, and security organs were um, caught up in these processes too. Um, so yes, man, some, you know, they did want to regulate this. Um, certainly the central government did. The local organs, again, it simply sort of depended on who was there. Uh, there are some cases where, yeah, um, the local, um, government officials did try to step in and secure property and, and make sure that, um, it wasn't flowing out. But this was, again, a, a chaotic time period where, um, you know, state administration is being shifted and new people are coming into positions of power and uh, even security officials aren't exactly, it's not always entirely clear what their authority really is. And so, um, at least for the summer of 1945, um, there's so much that's in flux that there isn't much way to um, kind of control this this process. Um and the Germans As, had no. Yeah, I, I was going to say the Germans and the Germans themselves had no recourse. I mean, their property was taken. Well, yeah, yes and no. Uh, I mean, for the most part, yes. But uh, you know, one of the things too I try to do in the book is to not simply. Uh, portray the Germans as, as as victims totally. That has been uh, kind of a, a common theme running throughout the, the historiography, and, and it certainly is true to a degree. If you were labeled a German, you were liable for expulsion, and and of course the maltreatment that might come with that. At the same time, Germans did did try to find ways to protect their property. So um, some some would simply try to hide it. Um, that could be burying it, putting it behind a wall or um, other, you know, sometimes, too, they would they would leave it with or give it to um, Czech old settlers that they were friends with or had relations with um, that they thought they could they could um, control it. Some tried to use the post office, actually, to send uh, what they could uh, to Germany or to Austria, depending on you know where they might have relatives or friends. Um, there was also even a kind of, um, well, there were some people, I guess I didn't really give them, them a name. It wasn't very prevalent, but some, you know, Germans got involved in the process of actually transporting goods across the border, uh, for Germans. Um, so they would, they would kind of go back and forth and collect property, movable property and, and bring it over to uh, Germans who had been expelled already or who were going to be expelled uh, for a small fee. So kind of, again, uh, runners is the idea that comes to mind. I'm sure there's a better word for it. So there was all kinds of ways that Germans did try to protect their property. Sometimes they would destroy it um, just so that Czechs wouldn't get their hands on it. Um, and then there, and then once the official decrees are all set up, there were mechanisms that 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 allowed Germans to try to appeal 
uh, to keep their property through official uh, government channels. This often didn't work out well, though, because um, mostly the checks would expel them before their appeal process was was kind of heard or, or carried out in total. Okay. Um, and so I, I think that's good for property. Uh, how about the next one, uh, labor? Yeah, so labor, uh, again, it's connected to property a little bit because um, one, for several reasons, really, but one aspect, of course, is the great migrations of, of Czechs, new settlers into the borderlands left um, certain, you know, kind of was a, a labor drain on certain parts of the interior, particularly agricultural laborers. Um, most of the new settlers who moved into these borderland regions were young. Um, they were not as well skilled, um, you know, they didn't have something to keep them in the interior as much. So they were sort of a little bit more mobile and that meant that interior farms, for example, um, really lacked labor by the, you know, 1945, um, harvest. And so labor was seen, um, and so Germans were often then forced to go to interior farms to do agricultural work um, for a year or two before they were expelled, either you know throughout the end of 1945 or throughout into 1946 um, until maybe they were expelled in the summer or fall of 1946. So labor, you know, on the one hand, was seen as punitive. Um, not only were they maybe forced to go into the interior for agricultural work, but many were forced into the mines that dotted the northern Bohemian landscape as well as parts of um, the Silesian parts of um, the Sudet, the former Sudetenland or, or the Czech borderlands there. So, you know, there was this punitive notion associated with labor that Germans should be forced to pay for what had happened to Czechoslovakia during the war. And this was um, kind of a key aspect. So many Germans ended up then in kind of horrible um, work situations, some of them, many of them uh, in labor camps, although uh, those numbers, uh, maybe many is, is the wrong word. The, the labor camps, there were many of them, of course, but the number of Germans that were actually put into them was um, not not incredibly high, somewhat like 20% or so. So um, these labor camps, though, again, they varied. Sometimes they were very harsh, kind of brutal labor camps that we think of and maybe associate with Nazi policies. In other cases, they were simply factories that, you know, existed and, and the Germans were supposed to go work, and but they basically lived a, a kind of... Um, not a normal life, but a, a passable existence, let's say, without the brutality associated with with forced labor. Um, now, on the other hand, there were Germans uh, in many cases that were needed simply to keep production going um, in borderland industries. There were a lot of different industries in the borderlands, and as Czechs uh, came to live there, um, they wanted to keep these industries going. Many many Czechs became managers of these uh, factories or firms, and they were they needed workers. And most um, Czechs that moved into the borderlands in 1945 and early 1946 were not going there to work in factories. Again, they were looking for much better uh, positions as managers or perhaps an owner of a pub or. A hotel or something that would would be a kind of easier existence that they could, you know, where they didn't have to work hard. And so this left factories without um, a lot of labor. And so Germans were then seen as, you know, the only available labor pool. And Czechs um, who worked in these industries or managed them sought to ensure that they had enough of these Germans to keep their factories going. And so they began to try to find ways to protect them from the expulsions. Um, and this was just general German labor. On top of that, of course, we have, because many of these um, industries that were there were specialized industries where, um, you know, these were skills that were not easily transferable and not easily learned. Um, many of, of uh, there was a push um, to 
find a way to keep um, specialist labor, as they called them, specialist workers. This was this started in the uh, glass making industry uh, in the area around Jablonets, uh, Nad Miso, uh, or Gablons uh, in German, um, where these glass makers uh, over years, of course, had honed their skills and were. And this was a, a very uh, profitable industry for the. Sudeten Germans and the Czechs wanted to keep it going, but they simply didn't have the technical know-how to do this. And so, they in this area around Jablonets, they by the you know they began to or the Czechs that moved in there and the old settlers that were already there began to organize this process to protect these glassmakers. And they sought to keep about 120,000 of them. Um, you know that was their goal. Uh, to try to keep this industry afloat. And this, this idea then began to spread to other parts of the borderlands as well. And, uh, a program emerged to really keep specialized German labor workers, um, in the borderlands. Um, what happened then was this obviously conflicted with the goal of expelling all the Germans and a kind of tug of war emerged between people who wanted to keep German workers and those who wanted to see every last German go. Um, and this kind of tug of war was on the one side, you had these Czech managers and people interested in the industry whose livelihoods were attached to this industry now. And on the other hand, you had the security forces and kind of the general population that wanted to ensure that, that Germans were, were thrown out of the country. Eventually that the, the conflict then over over these specialized German workers tilted more in favor of the security forces and the notion of getting rid of the Germans. Though I should say, in many local instances, um, Czechs were successful in keeping certain Germans around um, after the after the expulsions in order to, like I said, uh, support these industries as best they could. Um, I mean, you, you sort of touch, started to touch on your last section in your uh, last answer, um, industry, by when you were talking about glass factories. Um, and I'm wondering if you can elaborate on your final of the three economic factors. Um, and uh, just for curiosity, glass, I, I didn't actually, until I read your book, didn't know they had a, a, a sort of a robust glass-making industry. Uh, we know them mostly for iron ore and things like that. Um, so, so is that their their primary industry in which um, they're concerned about during this period? Well, um, there were several. So the other, you know, the, I guess from a, it depends on whose perspective we're looking at, of course. But uh, if I back up a little bit, I mean, the Sudetenland, if uh, to lay out the kind of industrial spectrum, I mean, it was a, it was quite uh, diversified. Um, but mostly what you had are small regional specialties like glass making, but also um, textiles were very broadly um, represented throughout the borderlands. But again, in many specialized kinds of industries like um, um, embellishments for women's clothing, things like lace making um, in the Western borderlands, you had glove making um, specialties, for example, um, linen cloth making. So there were a lot of, of um, kind of textile factories were probably the broadest category. But again, within that, there were a lot of real specialized um, um, factories, uh, women's nylons, for example, things like that, stockings. Um, the uh, Another big industry was um, mining. Um, that was probably the most important from the state's perspective. Um, in northern Bohemia had these vast uh, brown coal mines and out in Silesia near Ostrava you had the um, other other coal mines as well that 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 served the industry uh, the iron and metalworking industries around uh, Ostrava there so mining was another big problem um, and again there too it varied sometimes the labor was about you know punitive and, and kind of harsh labor but um, there were real concerns about how expelling all these miners would influence um, the coal production that was of key concern after the war 
Um, and, and then to, uh, along with glass making, a lot of other smaller specialized um, industries, even things as, as kind of seemingly unimportant as artificial flowers, right? You had a, a small region there in the northern Bohemian lands that, that did this. Um, but um, as the, you know, what what began to happen, of course, uh, was that the, you know, the question of, of economic development became important for um, the post-war government as it begins to head in the direction of state socialism, um, eventually when the communists then take over to in 1948, um, the interest in these smaller export industries begins to wane from an official perspective. And um, that that along with the expulsion, they kind of go hand in hand, destroys the those the special export industries that had existed um, prior to the war and had really uh, helped define anyway the Sudetenland economy as this kind of special export um, economy that that existed before the war. And so um, there's this transition moment at the end of the war. It's sort of ironic because as Czechs are, are again moving in and, and really taking over the Sudetenland for themselves, um, they want to keep the German special industries that were there but didn't have the ability to do so on their own. This brings us back to the labor question. But the state had other priorities. Um, that is to to move in a more direction of more heavy industry, um, the focus on mining, for example, um, and also metalworks. So um, there again emerges a sort of conflict between the settlers who had gone to the borderlands and the central government that wants to shift uh, the industrial focus toward these, again, a sort of more heavy industry in line with what we think of when we think of communist economies. And indeed, that was ultimately the direction they went, but it really, um, it really engendered a lot of, uh, conflict between local Czechs and the central government. Um, and I look at this in, in various ways. Um, for example, there's one small factory I follow, um, that was, uh, again, a textile factory. And it, it sort of slow. One of the other things too is these, these factories get, uh, put into kind of conglomerates by the Czech government and they lose any local control. And so you have these factories then, again, many of them small from, you know, 200 employees or even smaller to up to four or 500 employees. And they slowly get um, put into these larger groupings, um, nationalized firms. Okay. There's a process of nationalization happening from the central government. and um, they slowly but surely then these confiscated firms get get placed under the state control and they lose their ability to, um, you know, kind of influence their own future. And uh, as they get subsumed then and, and taken over, um, more or less investment gets cut off. And they and in addition, of course, much of the market was in the West. And so as the Cold Wars uh, emerging and, and economic ties between Eastern Europe and Western Europe began to get severed. There's really little future for, for most of these industries. Some of them do hang on, but in a kind of uh, truncated form from their pre-war status. Um, and really, again, it starts out, you know, these the confiscated firms that were confiscated from German owners get caught up in the middle of this because many of them fell in between the nationalization program that had started and was targeting large firms um, and private firms that were still in existence. And these confiscated firms, again, were sort of in limbo for many years, these smaller ones, ones that didn't fit under the nationalization program, but that were state-owned through the confiscation measures. It wasn't clear for a long time what was going to happen to those. But like I said, slowly, um, and actually there's, there's certain cases that I talk about in the book that um, led these confiscated firms to be attached to nationalized firms. And then at that point, um, they lose all their independence and essentially, um, you know, get folded into these large conglomerates and in many cases essentially get shut down and liquidated and their machinery gets sold or moved or, or something like that. So there's a lot of movement of industry along with people at this time. Um, 
and it's it sort of dovetails with the beginning or the shift from uh, the post-war period to this the uh, Cold War, the communist-led government of Czechoslovakia. Uh, fascinating. Um, as a way to wrap up discussion of your book, I wonder if you could just tell our listeners one or two key points um, you would hope they would take away from your book if they when they sit down and read it. Well, uh, so one I, one of the key points is to is that um, you know we should you know, so much of the study of ethnic cleansing has been focused on um, kind of mob nationalist violence. My book is an effort to to make us look a little bit in a different direction, not to not to argue that that that's not an important facet of of ethnic cleansing, but that um, economic factors, particularly in this case, were were key to shaping the the nature and the course of ethnic cleansing as it was carried out. Um, ec- economic factors and motivations determined how Germans lived, when they were expelled. And really also um, determine in many ways the consequences that uh, followed ethnic cleansing, um, the way that the borderlands were transformed, were very much bound up with all of these economic changes that I've been discussing. So that that's, for me, sort of the key factor. The other thing, too, um, that we didn't have a lot of time to talk about, but I map out a little better in the book, was how these various migration flows need to be considered. That is, these... Um, the resettlement program really was a part of ethnic cleansing as well. Um, uh, so we think of ethnic cleansing simply as removing people from a given territory. But uh, a, another important factor to keep in mind is who comes after them and, and or even as they're still living there. And how is that affecting uh, the process of ethnic cleansing? And again, the consequences it leaves, leaves behind. And I think these these two factors, the the kind of resettlement part and the economic part, you know, uh, historians have certainly talked and touched on it, but I try to move that more into the foreground um, to see how how those factors really shape these processes. Oh, fascinating. Um, So as a a matter of conclusion, um, we always like to ask um, our guests, uh, what are you working on now? So my my new project um, examines the relationship between the various compensation programs um, that resulting from World War II and the Holocaust and how these compensation programs helped to shape uh, memories in the war in Germany and Europe and beyond. Um, again, property will be a, a focal point for me here and sort of a, as a way to organize um, this study. But um, I'm thinking about uh, not only Jewish restitution, which is a key Part here, but also state-to-state reparations and other compensation programs like that of the expellees um, who end up in Germany uh, without anything, and eventually the German government, at least the West German government, I should say, um, sets up um, some compensation funds for these expellees, um, which turns into a very long process and a very interesting one. But and each of these have been, that is, you know, Jewish restitution, expelli, compensation, and uh, state-to-state reparations have all been studied to a certain degree, but no one has tried to kind of um, see where the where the overlaps are and the parallels are. And so, for example, for me, what's fascinating, one thing that's fascinating is how um, Jewish restitution, in a sense, becomes more important than the uh, state-to-state reparations um, through working out. Um, over the long many years, uh, in some ways it's still being worked out, um, you know, who should get what as a result of um, World War II and the Holocaust. And so it's sort of fascinating process to me. And I'll, I'll be doing some of the same things, looking at small case studies and, and looking at property exchanges. And um, we'll see where it goes. Hmm. Well, that actually sounds like a very fascinating project, and I hope when you finally finish the book, um, we'll have you back on the show to talk about it. Um, I also want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Um, And I also want to thank for everybody for listening, and we will see you all next time.